We are in a series in Common Ground South Penn called Gospel Culture. Let me try and give you the series in a nutshell for two minutes, and then we'll go to today's message. Gospel Culture, three equations that help us understand what this series is all about. The first one is this, gospel doctrine without gospel culture equals hypocrisy, right? Gospel culture without gospel doctrine is fragility. It's never going to last. It's not underpinned by the truth. However, gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals power. When the truth is incarnated or embodied in a community, not just a group of individuals doing their scattered thing over the peninsula, but when the truth of the gospel is embodied in a visible, tangible experienceable, like real, like you can rub elbows with in a pew, when when the truth becomes embodied in a people, it becomes powerful. The visitors can come in and experience it and and encounter the the, the reality of Christ. You can, because we know, as you know as well as I do, you can believe all the right things and still behave in an un-Jesus way. We want to be the kind of church that can offer wounded, broken, exhausted, imperfect people just like us new hope and life. One more equation that you haven't seen before. Are you ready for it? Gospel plus safety plus time equals healing. Have we got a slide for that, Stu? Is it not not there? Okay, there we are. Another slide. One more. Sorry, three more. Next slide, next slide. Hopefully I've got it right. There it is. Gospel plus safety plus time equals healing. Okay? Just think about that. So, so imagine yourself, you, you, you're a member of our community, and when someone on a Sunday invites you into this church, or on a Wednesday night into a life group, or on a Thursday night into Celebrate Recovery, and you come along, we're trusting that you would receive gospel, and you would be in an environment where the gospel is at work on you, like a shaping force on your life, in a safe place. Sorry, if you're online and you're joining us watching this, I realize I'm stepping out of this camera all the time. Um, Plus, gospel plus safety. You can be real. You don't have to pretend. Your heart can be genuinely impacted. Plus time, time enough to marinate in the gospel in a culture of meritocracy and performance. The gospel would be over time and working uh, working on you leads to a place of healing. Ray Ortland said it so powerfully, if we can jump on the next slide there, Stu. When he said, uh, the shared experience of grace for the undeserving, speaking of gospel culture, the corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, the vibe, the feel, the tone, the values, the priorities, the aroma, the honesty, the freedom, the gentleness, the humility, the vulnerability, the joy, as we we heard last week, the cheerfulness. Indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. That is our longing. That is our hope. Today, I want to start by asking this question. What is the most controversial thing that Jesus did? Think about it for a second. What is the most controversial thing that Jesus did? Now, it may not be the most controversial, but it's certainly at least among one of the most controversial things that Jesus did. Was it casting out demons? Was it interpreting scripture? Was it healing on on, on Sabbaths? 
Was it uh, this kind of group of misfits that he drew together as his band of disciples? I put to you one of the most controversial things that Jesus did. One of the things that Jesus got the most flack for was who he ate with. It was who Jesus ate with. There are theologians who say that Jesus got himself killed because of the way that he ate. He ate with all the wrong people. I want to explore that a little bit today. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at a story that is familiar, I'm sure, to many of us. Jesus entered Jericho, I think about 26 kilometers from Jerusalem. It starts off in the valley, and he goes up a long hill on his way to Jerusalem, where he would be crucified. And so on the way to Jerusalem, he heads through a town called Jericho, and he was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way and Jesus reached the spot, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, Lord. Here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. Father, would you come and speak to us from your word today, we pray. Jesus, there is something that you modeled in this passage in your life that feels very foreign to us today. We pray that as our hearts are melted by your love for us, that we would be able to start to live like you lived and love like you loved in our peninsula where you've sent us, we pray. Amen. Okay, so you've heard this the story before. If you're in the church, if you're a visitor, hey, you're gonna be in for a treat here. But um, because you've heard it before, if you're in the church, I mean, it can sound a little bit Sunday school-y, hey? It's so cute. Isn't Jesus just lovely? Jesus loves all the short people, uh, even the rich bad ones, right? I mean, we can read it like that, hey? This man was short, shame, he was far, but Jesus loved him. Jesus loves short people. That's amazing, hey? Jesus is so nice. It can be tempting to read it like very Sunday school-y. But if we do, we, 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 if we fail to understand it the way Jesus' original audience understood it, we'll fail to understand the power of the gospel and how, it, how Christ lived in such a countercultural way. So let's reread it nice and slowly like the first century hearers would have. And I want us to feel the tension as we go. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, had, had Jesus' original audience heard that, a little bit of a shock would have gone out in the audience because maybe some of them would have said, hey, I know that name. Surely this isn't the same guy that, 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 that I know. Because the, the guy I know, the guy that I'm thinking of, he's a dodgy, dodgy dude. So what's going to happen to this Zacchaeus guy? And, and then it continues. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now there are heart palpitations going out in the original audience. It is the guy. It's the tax collector guy. 
which means if he's the chief tax collector, he is the head of a tax collecting ring, right? He is wealthy because he has profited off of exploiting God's people. So I'd imagine if I was in the first century and I hear that introduction to the story, I'm thinking to myself, oh yeah, somebody's going to get it from Jesus. Somebody who deserves it is going to get it from Jesus. He's going to get what's coming to him. And verse 3, and this man Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Interesting in the Greek, it's difficult to tell who is short, Jesus or Zacchaeus. The translators go Zacchaeus because it's the only reference, I think, to shortness. If Jesus was short, we would have seen that probably elsewhere. But anyway, interesting little thing that's quirky about that. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, I want to say to you, I think Zacchaeus is an incredibly unlikely convert. The chances of this guy coming to faith and followership of Jesus are very slim. And I think four reasons are worth pointing out. Number one, Zacchaeus had already walked away from God. He had deliberately, over a consistent period of time, chosen to turn his back on the people of God and on God himself, on God's law, on God's ways, and he had set his life on probably chasing money and comfort. Number one. Number two, Zacchaeus had sold out on God's people. He had sold out on his own countrymen. In a Jewish society, tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They're not like SARS today where we elect a government and they collect our money and they provide roads and hospitals and all sorts of amazing services for us. No, no, no. This was a Roman-occupied country. So, so, so the Romans had come in and bullied and overthrown and taken over. And then they demand from our country, from our land that we own, high and exorbitant taxes. So let's just say, for example, the Romans were were asking for something like 50%. They would then enlist a local official to do the collecting because the local will know everyone. You can't hide away. You can't get away with it. And Zacchaeus was that person. He would have probably taken 20% on the top as well for himself. And the people wouldn't have been able to argue with him because it was enforced by the Romans. Can you feel the hatred people would have had for this guy who has sold out his own countrymen? I think he's an unlikely convert because, well, he's short. And what that means is he's going to struggle to get to Jesus. I mean, that's why it's pointed out in the crowd. This guy, uh, even if he wanted to get to Christ, he was going to struggle through this crowd to get to him, and there was no one who was going to help him. He was on his own. And lastly, and this is probably the big one, if Zacchaeus was going to become a follower of Christ, he was going to have to give up his entire life. Things were pretty good in the life of Zacchaeus in many ways. He was rich. He had everything going from him. And if he was going to follow Christ, in the words of Julius Malema, he was going to have to pay back the money, right? His job, his protection, his inheritance for his children, all of it, he was going to have to start over again. If you, you know the Bible, you maybe know the story of the rich young ruler. And Jesus came and said to him, you've, you've fulfilled all these laws. You want to become a follower of mine? Well, sell everything you have, give them to the poor, and come and follow me. At which point the rich young ruler turned around and went away sad and de- dejected because he knew he couldn't do it. So, so Zacchaeus is in a similar position here. 
Yet, verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. To which we in our modern Capetonian world think, wow, go Jesus. But the first century readers would have gasped. Jesus wants to stay at Zacchaeus' house You see, back then, as to a lesser extent, but in a similar way now, meals were boundary markers. Meals separated the ins from the outs, the haves from the have-nots. Meals um, demonstrated and displayed the rungs in a society. There were, there, were, there were set seating places in meals based on social standing so that everybody knew where everybody else belonged. In fact, do you know the word companion? The word companion is a compound word, which simply is, it means with bread. So your companion is one who you were with over a meal. They're your companions. That's who you are together with. A rabbi would never even have considered eating with a tax collector or sinner. It was unthinkable. Tax collectors were the lowest on the food chain. Tax collectors and prostitutes together lumped in a category called sinners. And this was a faith issue as well, because when you broke bread as a first century uh, Jewish person, person, When you broke bread, you prayed a blessing over that meal. And that blessing was then shared amongst your companions. You were, in a sense, lumped together in the blessing, which is an unthinkable way of polluting your holiness. And yet Jesus said, I must come down and and we must eat together. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. You've got to feel the tension in the original audience. I don't know who you think is the most corrupt, vile, unwanted member of our society today. I'm not going to put any names forward. (laughs) Fill in the blanks. I want you to imagine Jesus saying, I want to have a meal with you. You feel maybe angry. Do you feel maybe betrayed? You feel confused at best? All the people, verse 7, saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. I thought this was supposed to be the guy. Now look at... And it's exactly the shock that we would expect. J. Jeremiah, a scholar of the Bible, he said this. In the East, even today... To invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. Catch this last sentence. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. Jesus eating with Zacchaeus is the most extraordinary extension of grace to his life. And I think it's worth acknowledging that we struggle with God's grace. 
this passage exposes the fact that I don't think we like grace. Can we be real honest for a second? We don't like it when other people get away with it, do we? Especially if we ourselves either worked really hard to get what we have, or maybe in their bad way of gaining things, they took something from us. I mean, just think about the way you relate to a traffic cop. Traffic cop catches you for speeding or maybe for parking in the wrong place. Maybe you've thought something like this. Why are you bothering with me? Why don't you go and catch the real criminals? Hey, we want mercy for ourselves and we want justice for other people. That's what we want, don't we? Our hearts are far more severe than we like to think. In fact, we don't like the grace of God. And I think for many of us, even deep down, when we're recipients of grace, we struggle because we wish we didn't have to receive. We don't like to receive. We like to be in the position of strength where we're extending it. We don't like to be the recipients of it. But we'll never be able to... We'll never be able to genuinely love others until we can see ourselves as the outsiders that were undeservedly welcomed in. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. When you get grace, or when grace gets you, your life is turned right side up. In spite of all that disqualified Zacchaeus from God's table, in spite of all the things that should have been barriers preventing him from coming to faith, we see a genuine desire in Zacchaeus to know God. I don't know if he thought it all through before. I don't know if before this moment, before Christ came, he thought about his life a lot. But, but I guess I, I think maybe just Zacchaeus took one step of faith toward Christ, which led to another, which led to another, which led to another. And pretty soon, his whole life was turned right side up. And verse 9, critically, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. This man is a son of Abraham. He was one of the most hated, exiled, canceled in Jewish culture people who had ever lived. Jesus said, this man is a son of Abraham. He has a share in the promises of God. It's extraordinary. Today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation is not, hey, when this guy, goes to, when this guy dies, he's going to go to heaven one day. Not even that he's justified in a court before God. That wasn't the emphasis that they would have heard then. In an honor and shame culture, what the audience would have heard then was this outsider who's been in exile has been welcomed back into the family of God. It's extraordinary. He was an outsider. Now he's an insider again. Why? Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What was Jesus' mission on earth? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. How did Jesus seek and save the lost? Through who he ate with. Let's take a look at where we see this elsewhere in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 7. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating and drinking wine. We know he ate locusts and wild honey. And you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, this is Jesus' title for himself, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. 
and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is shown to the right. Uh, wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Now Jesus wasn't a drunkard, and Jesus wasn't a glutton. But clearly, he did enough eating and drinking with other people that they tried to throw mud at him. Right? And one such story continues here. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, a meal. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there, certain immoral woman is code for what we would today call a sex worker. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then in the home of a Pharisee, she knelt behind him at his feet weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. She kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. He would know that if he was being touched by a sinner, she was defiling him. You see, shame in that culture was, was, was contagious. It spread. She would know that, that he is being defiled. He would know he's being defiled. But you don't want to be thinking bad thoughts around Jesus, right? Verse 40, then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. Simon replied, you can just hear the smugness in him. Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, that's right. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. An insult and a snub, actually. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins and there may be many, have been forgiven. So she, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little only shows little love. And then get this. Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Jesus extends grace to her again around the table. She is welcomed in. Someone who, who the religious, of, and, and, and look, these Pharisees, they get a hard rap. You need to understand from their perspective, they're trying to love and serve Jesus. They, they're looking at, they're going, God has given us as a nation all of these promises. We're supposed to be the people of God. We're supposed to reign and rule and show everyone the ways of God. But look at us. We're conquered. Why are we conquered? What's wrong? It must be that there's so much sin in the land. So therefore, let's try and get everyone to live right. Therefore, God can restore us. But in so doing that, they've become self-righteous and they've, they've missed the mission of God. And in the home of this Pharisee, this, this sex worker, this prostitute comes and she's welcomed into the table, I mean, to the family, through the table. What's the thing I'm trying to help us to see today? 
that stories of Jesus extending grace to undeserving people through the table are not the exception. They are the rule. In Luke's gospel alone, there are over 50 references to food alone. One scholar said of Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, coming from a meal, or eating a meal. That's our Jesus. He ate and he drank with people a lot. And when he did so, people encountered God. They experienced his grace, which is in part why the early church exploded the way that it did. Because the early church who saw this in Christ and whose hearts were transformed by the gospel, the early church who were those who were forgiven much, therefore loved not only God, but others in society in need of forgiving much. Their tables broke the social boundaries of the day and grace exploded to those who were undeserving in the world. That's what happened. Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus, says that Luke uses the phrase, the Son of Man came only twice in his gospel. Once to tell us his mission, and secondly, to tell us Jesus' method. We read them both in our text today. The Son of Man came first to seek and to save the lost. How did he come to do it? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. How did he do it? One meal at a time. We have a word for this today. It's in our Bibles. It starts with an H. Any guesses? Hospitality. Should have like chocolates and prizes or something, hey? <laughs> Romans 12, verse 9 and 13. Just, just see this in the early church. Thinking, we're thinking gospel culture. We're thinking of people who were outsiders who didn't deserve to be at the table with Jesus, have been welcomed in, have found family, who've been loved much and forgiven much. Now, learn to live in the shape that they were loved by Christ. Romans 12, verse 9 to 13. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Verse 13. Always be eager to practice hospitality. The Greek word here, xenophilia, love of strangers. Opposite to xenophilia, xenophobia, fear of strangers. We saw the devastating effect of xenophobia across our country. What if we could flip that and see the incredible beauty of gospel culture in xenophilia? That's what happened in the early church, a place where strangers are welcomed in. Catch this one. This is, this is the text that inspired this message. I've gone the long way around to get there. Romans 15 verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You want to live for the glory of God? Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. How did, how did Jesus welcome us? Hi there. I mean, it's nice to see you. Cheers. Go sit down. We, we're good at that, hey? We're good at like being quite polite and then getting on with our lives, hey? Well, we do that. I know, and our life is busy. And, and uh, like a human being, you have a capacity, a capacity to extend empathy and compassion to a maximum 15 people, probably most of us about nine. So you're constantly working out who the people in your life who you can extend empathy to, and some are moving out and others are moving in, but it means you're constantly including and excluding people from your life. It's just the fact that you're human and you have limitations. It's just, that's the way God made us. However, 
it does cut a little bit with this, to welcome others. How did Christ welcome you? I mean, it's worth just sitting with that for a little bit. Are our lives so full that we don't have margin? I mean, Jesus was just passing through Jericho. I mean, he he had somewhere important to be. He was on his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross. I mean, that's probably the most important event in the history of the world. I know you've got some important meetings um, this week, but let's just put them in perspective. Um, And he just slows down, and he sees that that man, and he extends grace to him. Are our lives so busy that we no longer have capacity to welcome others as Christ welcomed us? What does it look like to to correct that? I think it, it takes a deliberate effort to build into your life either margin or just calendar invites to others whereby we can extend grace. Make sense so far? 1 Peter 4, verse 8 to 9, most of all, most of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. I think it's in the ESV, show hospitality without grumbling, is what it says. This is the NLT, the New Living Translation. Jesus didn't even have a home, but Jesus seemed to invite himself to other people's home and then extend hospitality to them in their homes. Jesus seemed to blur the line between host and guest. You don't have to, you don't have to have the, I mean, we'll get into it in a second, but, but just share your life, share your home. See, see you, you eat three meals a day, probably maybe you intermittent fasters only have two, um, but you've got uh, some meals in your day, Right? What if we could leverage those to extend grace to others? Rosaria Butterfield, such a beautiful story. Her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She was a um, lesbian, feminist, massively vocal activist who I think just out of like trying to pick a fight ended up going for dinner in the house of a conservative Presbyterian pastor. And Week by week, she was invited to just keep showing up. And the grace of God began to soften and transform her heart. In, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says this, Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who see it, so, so those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. I think Jesus saw through the lens of tax collector, chief tax collector, sinner, sex worker. He saw through all of those and his eyes pierced there and he saw the image of God contained within. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. I know I am touching you on your studio today. If you remember that strange song that came out of that music recording place all those years ago. 
Our homes are like our place where we retreat from the world, these sacred places that we put big walls and electric fences and everything to keep people out so that we can retreat, retreat there from life. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be places of safety and we should be putting ourselves at risk. I'm just saying, hey, what does it look like to invite others into your life as a means of extending grace? Now, let me be clear. Hospitality is not the same as entertainment. Entertainment is about impressing. Entertainment is about performing. It's about fancy plates and silverware and cooking and expensive things and other stuff like that, right? Jesus had none of it. Hospitality is about service, not impressing. Hospitality blurs the line between host and guest. Hospitality is a way of life. Come, come in. Let me share. Come and enjoy. Entertainment is often about getting something back in return. If I do this, maybe I'll get a good deal. Maybe I'll get another contact, whatever, whatever, whatever. Hospitality is about giving. It's about loving. Hospitality breaks boundary lines in our culture and society. It doesn't just invite upwards, hey, that's a really important person. If I invite them, maybe some grace is going to come my way. Maybe it it doesn't only uh, invite sideways. I can just be myself because we are the same. Um, it, It invites downwards as well. If this was not true, then none of us would be allowed to go to this table. If this was not a table of condescension in the sense that God, who was perfect and had everything, condescended so that he could be with us, you and I would never be welcomed at that table. And friends, this is the kind of culture that historians say caused the early church to spread and grow like wildfire in a world that was so divided and a world that was so segregated The gospel cut through those barriers simply because of the way in which the early church ate. Francis Schaeffer said it like this, One cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis, the power of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be shown simultaneously for its purity of doctrine. We, we are not those who think we are loving people by, by fudging the word of God and making the word of God more palatable and more like our culture. We, that, that's not the solution here. We see here simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But exhibition of the love of God in in practice is beautiful and must be there. So we don't fudge the truth. But at the same time, it's not enough to just be, I'm holding the truth. Look at me. I'm doing my bit here. The truth softens our hearts and works out in the way in which we give, we give out our service and our love to others. It has to be so. Otherwise, we're hypocrites, and we don't really believe what we claim to believe. And so let me ask you, who do you identify with in these stories? 
I'd love, I'd, I would have loved to have seen the movie or the story that just details the rest of Zacchaeus' life. Hey, I mean, I can't help but think that someone who experienced so much grace, had his heart so transformed, must have lived the most extraordinary life. I can't help but wonder how many people experienced his, the grace of God through his life going forward. And I'd love for us to be the kind of church, for us to be the kind of community where, where the grace of God is extended to others. I'd love for us to be a place where gospel plus safety plus time leads to healing in many people's lives. For us to be the kind of church where good things happen to bad people. Isn't that just an amazing thing? And I know there's a part of you that cringes and says, are you saying I'm bad? I'm saying yes. It's true. Jesus said there's no one good. He was good on our behalf. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. We don't like grace. Remember I said to you? No, 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 no. Jesus, Jesus welcomed you in spite of yourself. When you understand that you were forgiven so much, there's a capacity that opens up in your heart to love much. Come, let's go to the table. Can I ask that just members of this community, if you're here, would you mind just sharing amongst, passing around bread and uh, well, matzos and grape juice. If you're not a Christ follower, please feel no pressure to, um, to partake in this meal. Um, these are symbols for us in the church of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. And so I totally get, if you're not a believer, how this wouldn't mean a whole lot. That's totally okay. Perhaps you would just reflect a little bit about what we're doing as a church here. I know there's different moods that we experience communion in. Sometimes it's very somber. The, the, the early church shared meals all the time, and they, they, they used to call it the agape feast. It was, it was less about a tiny little piece of something and a tiny little mini glass of something, and more about generous being together and sharing their lives. And somehow it's become reduced to this, I get it, I, I understand something of the why, um, and we need to break the mold sometimes as well. But um, this was a family thing. This was a family experience. Can I, when, when you've got um, these elements of bread and uh, grape juice, would you mind, um, let's just stand, let's just look around a little bit. It's such a privilege to be together. Uh, I love meeting new people. Jackie, it was wonderful to meet you this morning. Welcome. Good to see friends. Callum, it's great to see you, mate. It's phenomenal, man. I love being in a family together. But we were a family of people who were totally disconnected. We were all outsiders. Were it not for Christ who came and through this meal welcomed us in. In spite of who we are, He extended grace to us. We who were deservedly outsiders have been made insiders into the family of God. This is good news. This is good news.
And so let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that this meal is symbolic of my welcoming and belonging in your family. Jesus, I thank you that I belong in the family of God, not because of anything I have done or not done, but because you, Jesus, welcomed me in. Because you lived perfectly and you died in my place. I need not fear whether I'm in or out, in or out, based on how I'm doing every day. But my life is hidden in your life. And so therefore I am secure in your perfect life. And I am welcomed at the table of God. Just think for a second. Think of the perfection of heaven. Not a single tear. Not a single ounce of insecurity. Not even a hint or thought of ugliness or competitiveness. A place of selflessness. Think of the great lengths that God went to to welcome you in there. Yet you did it, Christ. I'm welcomed in. You've forgiven me so much. You loved me so emphatically that my shame was taken away and I was given a place of honor at your table. Jesus, I thank you, Christ, for your body that was broken, that was given as a sacrifice for me and your blood for the washing of my sins the welcoming of home, that I would be um, blood-tied in family to the creator God of the universe. No one can kick me out of this family. I'm family by blood, by Christ's blood. Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat of this bread and drink of this grape juice.